Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Welcome to Saturday Night. I am Monique Dusan, and this is All the Things. This is a show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. This is all the also the show where we cram behind a tiny table while our set is being rebuilt. You love it. You know you like being close to me? This is very close. Hey! <laughs> Yes, we, oh, we are close. We yes. are close. I'm sorry. All right. So helping us on the show tonight, over at the house, miles away, is the one and only Bob Bontrager. Yes. There he is. Oh, he's got his March for the Martyrs merch tonight. That's where our daughter works and is, uh, does journalism. And she, boy, Emily's uh, pumping out the content. More than me, but I'm trying to figure out how do I live in the same house? And I have never seen this hat. Oh, I love that. It's his new one. He's got like a little rotation of the hats, but this is the new the new addition to the hat. Uh, oh, the remember hat that group new edition? No. You're younger than me. Mr. Telephone Man. I think that was new edition. Yeah. I think I was in graduate school. Oh, me. <laughs> Dang, that's deep. My mom used to play that song. Anyway, okay, helping right. us out on the show tonight. Who do we have? We have the one and only Alicia Moss. And oh, speaking of Emily Bontrager. Yes. She's one of the moderators tonight. So we are live for these shenanigans. So we want to invite you to add your voice to the conversation. Uh, this is the show where we actually read the comments on the live stream. So we always love to see who's checking in and give us a shout out let us know that you are watching and um make sure to also share the show make sure to like the show and um even if you don't feel comfortable sharing the show publicly on your social media accounts that's okay no we understand no that. no no look look folk y'all gonna have to have a, a, a ounce of boldness and courage okay this, we're is, coming with the this is what this is, yes we're coming with the courage message already this is what we're into this is this is where we're going we have had a year and a half two years of the it's okay if you don't share it it's okay don't be just secretly behind the scenes like oh yeah yeah but i'm never gonna say nothing in front of my friends no, no. don't don't be doing that no okay that, that's just my own my own little take on it. you don't have to be as loud as i am but we she can have loud i'm sitting inches away Okay, so what have what have what have we been up to? Let's let's talk. It was a big it was a big day yesterday. We had the uh, big Supreme Court decision. Mm, oh, we did. Yes, 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 yes. We are praising the Lord for that decision, um, and now we are praying for. Um, we are praying for states and state leaders to have boldness. Um, for their own state, for what they will stand for. Yeah. Um, we are praying for resources for PRC's pregnancy resource centers. Um, That's hopefully a show topic we've been yeah. we've been kind of working on behind the scenes, trying to find a good one that somebody that we can interview about um, pregnancy resource centers and all of their important work. There's websites that you can direct people to because that's one of the main objections from the pro-abortion side is that well, you're just pro-birth. Um, which I think is a complete it's a straw man, but um, there's a lot of resources out there in different ways. 
Christians run adoption agencies, PRCs. There's tons of um, things that people can avail themselves of. And yesterday, just coincidentally, we got to have a meeting with Scott Klusendorf, mm-hmm. which we were talking to him about a whole different conversation. But man, what a cool moment it was to be able to um, just thank him for his decades of work in the realm of pro-life arguments and advancing those and making them um, succinct and available for lay people. Mm-hmm. Because really, like, if you've heard some some uh, some defenses of the faith when it comes to the the preborn and defending life, most of those arguments that we take for granted now and use every day were developed and pioneered by Dr. Scott Klusendorf. Yeah, I, I had never heard of him until about six months ago. Yeah, kind of recently. So, um, so go, but, yeah, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, Bob's putting up uh, Dr. Klusendorf's book, uh, The Case for Life. It's one of his books, but it's a great handbook for responding to all of the common objections. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll get Scott on. He apparently follows the ministry. Yes, he does. I thought I was bold. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> You make me look like a puppy. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know. He's kind of new for you, though. Yeah, he's, he's very new for me. I think, um, you know, I wish I would have known about him when I was in, when I was advocating for abortion. Um, but I almost didn't make the show tonight because I was responding to people on Instagram who clearly, I guess, just thought I was going to, like, roll over to their comments. You guys, let's just be clear. Like, you don't have to take, you don't have to take it. You don't have to take nothing off nobody. And no, it doesn't mean we have to be disrespectful. We got to be rude or anything like that, but you can have clarity. So when, so somebody wrote in and was like, this isn't about, this isn't about babies. This is about blah, blah, blah. Like you, you don't want to protect children and, and make sure that they have early childhood education. What does killing a, a human have to do with early childhood education? Can the child get here? Like, let's get the child here first. We don't need to talk about early childhood education if the child don't get here. And someone else was like... um, One of the handles was my favorite. It was faith at the intersection of... WTF. Yes. And that person told me that I had a a harmful approach. Toxic theology. Yeah, it it was toxic. um, Toxic theology. Theologically toxic um, and harmful. And I, I was all the way... I just went all the way in, like... Here it is. She wanted to have a she wanted to have a conversation with you about your toxic theology and and to defend. She wanted to to talk to me so she could defend why abortion is biblical. I said, "Honey, if you would like to have a conversation on what it means to be a true Christian, I am up for that conversation. There is no conversation to be had about why it is okay to murder, like to kill the unborn. Like that is it is not okay." Um, and you used to be pro-choice. I mean, yeah. I mean, I remember that being a, a difficult issue mm-hmm. um, for you to work through. And, and still there's questions even more recently that you're, you're still. Yeah. The Lord is still journey. working with me. I don't yeah. think people understand that, you know, it, I'm a recent, I don't want to say a recent convert, but I'm recent, I'm, I'm newer in the historic Christian faith, mm-hmm. progressive Christianity. I understand a lot of, but when I get clarity on something, I'm clear. That doesn't mean that, you know, I can't be, I can't be, um, you know, convinced of other things. I think we have a lot of conversations. I have conversations with Elisa Childers. Um, 
I have conversations and people who um, help hold me accountable to things and question me on things and say, well, you know what, this biblically actually means this. And we can talk about those things. But when I get clear, I'm clear. And especially if I have the, the word to back it up. Yeah, this is not a conversation for winsome convention convictions. <laughs> I, I, I'm not that winsome. And so, yeah, I am sure if you follow like our Insta- version of Winsome, I said what I said. I said what I said. I am sure if you go to our Insta account, you will see the not so Winsome Monique. Um, and that's okay. I, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I am not. It's okay. People are, it's a free country. They can be there or not. All right, one more piece of house cleaning. We want to let you know that this show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity the Theology Mom podcast and Family 210 clothing. We actually have a new design to show the family tonight. Let's do it. Is one that I designed <laughs> recently is I don't co-parent with the government. So yes, this one uh, is my first Theology Mom design. And so you can go check that out over at family210.com and check out a couple different colors. There's a sweatshirt version and yeah, kind of a thing. I think that's, it's such an important message. Especially and for tonight's topic. Yes, it is. Yes, it is, honey. The government don't have no say to your kid. And you know what? Let me stop. Let me, <laughs> let's bring George on before. Yeah. So we got a big topic tonight. Yes. Uh, we're going to be talking about what uh, do, what options do parents have when their local schools are a woke mess? Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a lot of letters asking some version of this question. So we thought we would tackle it. Um, we've talked a lot on the show about homeschooling, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. But what I want to let everybody know is that our two guiding principles in all ed- uh, conversations about education is that parents are in charge of their kids. Parents are responsible for their education, for their upbringing, for their discipleship. So that doesn't mean that parents have to do every single aspect of the education but ultimately they will they are accountable they are responsible in God's economy for how that is and our second guiding principle is to advocate for education options uh-huh. and um, so tonight on the show we're going to introduce you uh, to our friend George Rosca Jr who is working to help parents particularly in the state of California but now in other states too to know their options uh, educationally, how to even uh, push back yes. against some of this ideology in public schools. So let's welcome George to the program. Hey, George. Hey, Krista. Hey, Monique. Great to oh, be with okay. you here. Are you, are you muted? muted? Yeah, you're muted. I, I'm. Okay. Hold on. Can you hear me, Krista? We're muted. <laughs> All right. Well, this this is forgive great. us. This forgive us. us. Well, this yeah. is us. You our, our antics. Okay, welcome, George. <laughs> well, thank you, Krista. Thank you, Monique, for having me on your show. Yeah, thank you. It's I'm glad you're here. Um, I ran into you um, quite by surprise at Wilberforce um, last month, and after everyone, and you like live a few miles from yeah, us. just a few miles from us. <laughs> um, but it was our first time meeting and after the crowds cleared from around your table, um, 
you know, I walked away with two specific thoughts is that one, you have a tool that parents really need. It doesn't matter what state they're in. They need to be able to get some of these keys to kind of unlock some things or understand the questions that they can ask in their community. Um, And then two, I was just like struck by your boldness in being like, no, this is wrong no, we don't do this. And it was just such a clear, um, a clear boldness that I was really thankful for it. And I immediately told Krista, like, yeah, she came right back to you the have table. to go meet George. <laughs> you have to, like, we had been connected, you and I have been connected on Facebook, yeah. but so glad that you're here. Well, give us a little introduction of you. Give us like a little one minute snapshot of, of George Roska Jr. and who you are and what you're up to. Uh, well, I'm born in, was born in Romania under the communist regime of Nicolae Ceausescu. Uh, my, my, my parents um, ended up uh, immigrating to the United States uh, shortly after uh, the communist, the revolution took place in, in 89. We came here to the United States in 91. Um, I'm the eighth of 12 children. Uh, my dad and actually we, we just were, were celebrating 40 years since he was imprisoned for the faith in Romania. Um, and it, that took place a couple a couple of days ago, um, but we moved here in 1991. September uh, grew up for the most part here. I was almost seven when we came here, so I went through the public school system in America. Um, got a bachelor's in civil engineering, master's um, MBA with emphasis in project management. Uh, married, four kids. Been working at the same place for going on 16 years. Um, so. And uh, in, in our local church, uh, I get to support there as a pastor and um, have been uh, doing that joyfully. Very good. And uh, you are, as a Romanian immigrant, have continued to stay in that community and continuing to serve in, in that community. And it's a, it's a tight community. I mean, you guys are, um, have a very particular experience that you've come from in, in immigrating um, out of uh, a communist country. But I also think you, you offer, as from an immigrant family, a, a unique perspective on what we're going through right now. Well, there was, in Romania, there was only one option when it comes to education, and that was the government school. Uh, and so we talk about, you know, indoctrination uh, at a, you know, at the epitome level. Um, and so my, my older siblings, uh, they all went through it. My dad, my dad comes from a large family as well. He's the eldest of 10. Uh, so I have a lot of people just in my immediate family that I can talk to, um, that have shared, you know, their experiences, uh, growing up there. Um, but then also in our larger community, in our churches, um, plenty, plenty of people still alive. Uh, that have lived through the horrors of communism. And so um, I'm, I'm really grateful for my parents and especially my dad uh, for his boldness. And uh, it's, it's rubbed off on me some. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, you, yeah, it's what struck me about you. One of the things, like I said, your boldness. You actually founded um, a nonprofit called Protect Our Kids. And you address like a triple threat of what is coming at our kids through the public school. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So about four years ago is when I started to dig into what's happening currently in the public schools. 
Um, and then about um, a year into that process, I got to meet uh, a gentleman who's we're now very good friends. Uh, his name is Mark Schneider. And, and together uh, we co-founded this organization called Protect Our Kids. And what we tried to accomplish through it is number one, uh, our mission is to equip and inform parents on what's going on. And you can do endless digging um, because the teachers union likes to send you down a lot of rabbit trails. Um, and so you could just spend endless time researching what, what's happening. So we try to disseminate it and distill it down to three things. If we could choose the top three ugliest things that are going on. Um, so we, 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 we coined that as our triple threat. Number one, it's gender and sex ideology, uh, which is seen through the comprehensive sexuality education um, curricula. So no longer the old version of sex ed, but now it's comprehensive sexuality education. The second threat is critical race theory, um, which is exhibited in the school system through historical revisionism, ethnic studies. And then the third uh, triple of the triple threat is social and emotional learning. Uh, and this is the place where I think parents and teachers um, uh, get a little bit hazy on, ah, oh, is that really bad? It's not that bad, or it could be used for good. Um, and so it's just a, a type of pedagogy uh, that is being utilized in public schools to bring in a value-based teaching, but that value system is actually the worldview of critical theory and critical mm -hmm. social theories and not just critical race theory. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad to hear you make that differentiation because a lot of people don't don't know that. Yeah, yeah. no, completely. Um one of the things that I heard you say is that in addressing the triple threat, you are looking at a revisionist history as well. Now, when I talk about revisionist history and things like that, I'm a racist. I, um, you know, don't want the real history to be taught and things like that. So you don't want to, because usually the, the, the rejoinder to like, I don't want to teach revisionist history and what maybe we should even define what revisionist history is. And then, you know, some of the common responses is, well, if you're not for revisionist history, what you are for is racist history. Mm -hmm. You don't want to teach the truth. You don't want to teach about Jim Crow or slavery or, or that sort of a thing. So maybe just break it down for us a little bit more yeah. as to what revisionist history is and what that looks like. Sure. Well, I usually start off with saying an old Soviet joke which goes like this, the future we know, but it's the past that keeps on changing. Mm. And that is what Marxist, socialist, communist governments do very well. Uh, they have to reframe the past constantly to meet the new narrative. Um, and so they're, they're just picking and choosing things from history uh, that they want to emphasize. Uh, and so that's what I see happening with American history. Um, I'm a big lover of history and I, I get this from my dad, uh, even though, um, you know, my dad grew up in Romania for the first 40 years of his life. Um, he really loved history and he had to, you know, go through pain to try and get access to history books or just any kind of literature outside of what was, um, allowed by the, the communist government. And so I've learned a lot of history from him, uh, but 
growing up then for, for me here in America, I've always gone to the library. My parents, my dad, every Monday night took us to the library. And so I read a lot of history books. And one of the things that has struck me from what's happening today in public schools versus the things that I've learned, um, you know, I think that they're hiding certain things from history today uh, that we learned about in the past. Um, I've never had a history class that hid slavery, that hid Jim Crow, uh, that hid all of the things that happened during the, the 60s. Um, you know, it, I've learned about all of these things. And so it always struck me like, why are we going backwards and saying those things are not being taught in public schools when I went through that system in the 90s and early 2000s? And they were always there. So first of all, I always ask the question, like, what public school did you go to? Do you still remember the history classes you took? And tell me, please tell me, give me an example of where your teachers intentionally hid this history from you. Because I never experienced that. I think that's interesting. Um, I know in recent conversations that I've had with young people, especially coming off of the Stand to Reason tour and things like that, your observation of you think that, um, you know, certain parts of history are being hidden now. Um, I would say in my experience in talking with young people that there is some truth there, um, at least in their experiences, you know, having certain conversations, they're like, well, I never learned about this or I never learned mm -hmm. about that. I, um, I would be willing to go so far to say that I think, you know, even, growing up um, and doing, uh, I would say the majority of my schooling in the 90s, um, there were pieces of history that is only presented from one side. You know, I'll learn about, um, you know, Marcus Garvey, but I won't necessarily learn about someone like Benjamin Thomas Franklin Sowell. Or Benjamin mm -hmm. Franklin. You know, it, so it there were things that I feel like are still not complete narratives of history. And what I hear you saying is that, you know, a complete narrative of history is important. That's kind of the position that we take at CFBU is let's not only teach the noble things about our history or the ideals of our country, but let's teach everything, you know, so that there's context teaching um, primary sources. Mm -hmm. um, we, often advocate and run book clubs, you know, like, hey, primary sources are important. And that's an important part of education. Um, but I think that what can easily happen is that um, there's a tendency to kind of skew one side or the other of like, we're only going to teach the noble parts, or we're only going to teach, you know, the, we're going to teach through the lens of the 1619 project, and everything is going to be viewed through the lens of slavery. And uh, you okay over there? I'm sorry, my earring what? got caught in my jacket. <laughs> What's going on? But um, I think that that's uh, that's that's the difficulty is is trying to find that that place of of teaching truly a, a full a fuller picture of history. I don't know any thoughts about that. No, that that that's very important. In fact, we have seen a lot of the 1619 project making its way, not just in California. Uh, but in most of the blue states, um, and then even in the red states, when you look at the liberal cities, 
because what we deal with in the public school system is so much controlled by the teachers union. Mm-hmm. What most people don't realize is you could be in a blue or a red state. They control everything, you know, everywhere. Um, and so they push this thing down. Um, even when a, you know, a black scholar like, you know, Robert Woodson um, would, you know, discredit and, I think the world's top historians have come out to discredit the 1619 project, Mm -hmm. Uh, yet it's still being used. Um, And and this is the place where we really try to show parents that, look, um, even when the most renowned scholars of history are discrediting the 1619 project, why are the teachers union still pushing this in your local school district? Um, it, It clearly shows there is an agenda here. So your triple threat, the first one is historical revisionism. The second one is comprehensive Comprehensive. sex education. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. And I'm going to, I want us to really break it down because I see this as such a threat um, within public schools, even within private schools and coming into Christian schools. Can you, first of all, just explain what is comprehensive sex education? How does it differ from the sex education that you or I may have had? Yeah, so the left does a very good job at changing definitions. And this is an area where the, the definition of the word sex versus the definition of the word sexuality is critical. Uh, so I have to go back to 2006 when... Planned Parenthood, the International Planned Parenthood Federation actually came out with a guide called their Comprehensive Sexuality Education Guidelines. And in there, they have the definition of the word sexuality, which coincides at this, in that same year, 2006, the World Health Organization updated their definition of the word sexuality. So when we think of sex, sex ed, that's what we used to call it in the past. It was biological anatomy that that's all you were learning. But sexuality has a different definition. It means sex, gender, gender identity, gender expression, um, behaviors, attitudes, eroticism, pleasure. It has a paragraph long definition. Mm -hmm. And so then... Uh, that's when I had my aha moment. When I finally saw that, I said, okay, that's why they use the phrase comprehensive sexuality education in all of their curricula. They don't define what that means because they go back and they rest on the foundational documents of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And so parents, when they initially look at a board agenda or a school curricula that says comprehensive sexuality education, they're like, oh, that's just sex ed. But they don't understand the new definition of the word sexuality. So then what ends up happening is when they go and actually review the curricula and when they see, you know, pornographic images, when they see a bunch of crazy stuff, they shake their head and they're like, how in the world? I thought this was sex ed, but they didn't realize that the definition of sexuality is different. So I I always take parents right back to that. And in fact, um, on our website, under our videos tab, under protectourkidsnow.org, we created a very specific video for this, which is entitled, What Are Sexual Rights? Because 
after 2006, when the IPPA, IPPF, International Planned Parenthood Federation, published their guidelines on comprehensive sexuality education, in 2008, they came out with their sexual rights declaration. And those two are the two foundational documents upon which CSE mm-hmm. rests on. Thank you. Now, now that we have an understanding of what CSE is, comprehensive sexuality education versus sex ed, like the normal sex ed that we all went through, how does this show up in the classroom? What does it look like, sound like? So that parents can understand kind of, you know, hey, I can be on the lookout for this. Yeah, so it it's going to be different from, from uh, state to state, but in most of your liberal states, uh, what you have is um, you have to opt your children out of this. So by default, your children are automatically enrolled in this curriculum. If you don't find your opt-out form that usually gets sent in the mail with 50 other things, uh, then your, your child by default is going to be in this class. The class is typically taught by your health teacher or your science teacher one time in junior high and one more time in high school. Um, and so, so you should what, assume yeah. if your kids in public school, you should assume that they will go through this. You have to be mm-hmm. kind of proactive as a parent to figure out when is it happening. So I, I think what I'm hearing you say, George, is. Uh, don't let your kid participate in this at all. It's not like a yeah. little sexuality education is going to be okay. Um, you're, you're advocating for do whatever you can as a parent if your kid's in public school to opt out of this. Correct. Okay. Correct. And, and, and again, the comprehensive sexuality education comes to you through the lens of critical theory. So what do they care about? They care about providing sex ed uh, in the new uh, worldview saying, well, we have all of these oppressive, underserved, underprivileged communities, uh, which are the LGBTQ um, really communities. So now we have to teach, um, you know, homosexuality. Uh, we have to teach anal sex. Uh, we have to teach, you know, how the, these, you know, either sexual orientations or gender identities um, are expressed how they express their uh, romanticism, how they express their sexual desires. Um, and so uh, that's how you end up seeing it played out. You, you start to see exercises like, well, let's learn how to put a banana, uh, put a condom on a banana. Um, and that has happened in many school districts here in California as early as uh, sixth or fifth grade. Um, going on into junior high, uh, you will see, uh, you know, a lot of pornographic kind of depictions because one of the things that happened way back in probably the 60s and 70s, I believe, is that the teachers union changed the obscenity laws uh, in America to where they do not apply in the school system in an educational setting. So a teacher could show a student pornographic material that same material, if I want to show it to a, a kid, um, you know, on my street, uh, you know, I, I could be jailed for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is how crazy, you know, things have become. Now, uh, one of our, our moderators, Alicia, she works as a, a facilitator for a charter school 
here locally. She's she's in our area, but she does um, she works with families who educate at home, and so it's kind of a homeschooling slash charter school situation. And she made a really good point on the chat. She says, parents need to know their rights Mm -hmm. because not all districts will explain them to you. So I think this is a point I really want to highlight is, first of all, the importance of parents being proactive to go inquire. And you might have to inquire multiple times to find out, you know, what the school district is doing. Sometimes the answers aren't easily available or... I have a a close friend who is in the Portland, Oregon area. When she tried to opt her daughter out of the the, um, sexuality, uh, comprehensive sexuality ed, um, the school acted like nobody had ever made this request before and that there was no way for her to opt out. They literally were like, oh, we don't have a form for that. Like, Mm -hmm. what? And um, then... You know, it just seemed very murky. Like, I think if I'm remembering right, like it was almost like the school just told her, well, just don't visit that area on Canva or on Canvas, the the online platform, the learning platform. That was their opt-out program. Yeah. And they, but then sometimes we hear stories that the school sends it to the student anyway. So parents will have to be, vigilant. Um, my friend had to have a meeting. I think she had, she and her husband had multiple meetings with the principal and vice principal just to try to opt their child out of it. So it, it, parents will need to have a level of proactivity in inquiring what to do and what it looks like in their district. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I would, um, encourage parents to do is to like ask your kid, what are you guys reading? What are the books that you're reading in school that aren't coming home? Um, A couple of weeks ago, I went down a rabbit trail thinking about um, the comprehensive sex education conversation and the childhood books that I found were so, I'll use the word vivid um, or real that I had to stop. I felt like I felt convicted as a Christian. I was like, whoa, because it was like drawings. So it was, it wasn't like, um, you know, pictures of real human persons, but it was drawings, you know, of all the things and different positions literally drawn out for elementary school, for students? elementary school students, I would say probably fifth or sixth grade, um, where you can see like I won't go into to all of that because I don't know whose kids are watching but um or if there are kids watching but just think of you know things that involve positions or um things children things, shouldn't things shouldn't children should to. not know you know they shouldn't know this um and so yeah like I, as a grown adult, had to click out. And so these are the things that are, you know, cartoonish, drawn in and things like that, but still real before your your kids' eyes. So one of the things that, you know, for listeners all across the country, right, um, I, I try to help parents understand that every state will have a law about this. And it's usually called the Healthy Youth Act. Here in California, it's called the California Healthy Youth Act. Washington, Oregon, New York, um, you know, in Massachusetts, they have their own version of this Healthy Youth Act. And it really comes 
um, from the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States, SECUS is the acronym. Uh, but this organization has been advocating for the advance of comprehensive sexuality education together with Planned Parenthood all across the country. So once you have the law, then the, the, the State Department of Education within that state has to give teachers a guideline on how do you then uh, teach this, you know, this law, right? So in it, that's called a framework. So the State Department of Education provides a framework and then curricula providers are able to take that framework as a guideline, develop curriculum books and resources for it, which then every local school district gets to adopt uh, if it's in compliance with the state law and with the framework. Um, and so one of the things that I, I did was I read this 700 plus page document here in California, which is now being exported all throughout the country. Um, and on our website, we have under the brochures tab, a, um, an entire, uh, uh, what we call our evidence package to CSE. And I extracted a quote. I out can of this. download it. I, I People have it. can download it. They can download yeah. it, print it out. It's all the information they're going to need about it. So, so one of the quotes um, on lines 1086 and 1087 from the health framework says this, examples for spiritual abuse include using spiritual beliefs to justify abuse. And what does abuse mean? Insisting on rigid gender roles. So for believers um, in, in you know, the Judeo-Christian worldview, where we, where we know that God has created male and female, and there are rigid gender roles and categories, um, we are being now labeled by the state of California as spiritual abusers of our children. Uh, and I point this out to parents and to pastors wherever we speak. Uh, the, the state of California now wants to become the church of California. Uh, and they're getting into theology, uh, not just the, their own realm of civic duties. I see this, this is where we start running into some problems mm -hmm. because uh, like we said at the beginning, two of our guiding principles, one of them is parents are responsible for their children. Yes. And I don't co-parent with the government, yes. but people are not imagining this. Now in the me news media, they're trying to make us feel like we're overreacting crazy you know we're just imagining things mm -hmm. this is just a boogeyman that we're imagining but this is part of the active agenda of of what's out there so all right let's keep going because i want to get to the the solutions part of it <laughs> so let's quickly do sel now um i want to refer people to uh, an entire podcast i did on social emotional learning a few months ago our moderators can uh, put a link to that in the chat where I just give a crash course on what is social emotional learning. But this is how the critical social theories are being brought in, you know, as a as a Trojan horse into the, the public yep. schools. So talk to us really briefly about about social emotional learning and what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, social emotional learning uh, was developed by CASEL, C-A-S-E-L, the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning. Uh, they are like, you know, the, the organization that has put all of this together. Um, and when you go under their, you know, their website and you download some of their material, um, it really shows 
what the intent of social emotional learning is all about. Uh, they want to model a child's behaviors and values. And how do they do that? By centering their entire focus on, well, everything starts at, at the classroom level. And then after that, it goes to, you know, the, the second, you know, circle after the classroom. And then the third circle after that is finally the family. So they have completely upended uh, and turned upside down uh, what you and I believe that it, the primary caregivers and, um, you know, the responsible for growing our, our children spiritually um, and, you know, physically, emotionally, everything uh, is the parents. They put us a distant third. Um, and so they are trying to model that behavior, that worldview, the underlying uh, principles. Um, and so here, here's kind of how it looks like when it's played out in the classroom. And I think a lot of parents have gotten to view this because of, you know, the pandemic and everything went going virtual. Um, and I got to see the same thing. Uh, in fact, at my son's uh, school district, uh, when he was in sixth grade, what the teacher did was at the start of every single day, they would log on and the first 15 minutes was their social emotional learning time. Although social emotional learning is just, um, you know, in, it, it's incorporated in every aspect, uh, every subject matter, every category, uh, mathematics, history, science, it, it's all dovetailed in there. Uh, but this teacher did, you know, just 15 minutes and it started off by asking a lot of questions, very invasive questions. How do you feel this morning? Why do you feel this way? Um, and then what does a teacher do? They start providing resources on how to, you know, support a child because SEL is very about supporting the whole child. And it's almost it came, like a quasi I call it pop psychology intervention. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, so the, the teacher starts playing psychologist almost. You they're, know? they're a therapist right now. Yeah. Um, and so they got to the topic of gender identities and sexual orientation, a topic that should only be taught under CSE and health class for those two weeks out of the year. But no, SEL brings all of those kind of topics. And so the way that they brought it in was, well, we need to celebrate our differences and we need to affirm our differences. And I've been discipling my son to know whenever these kind of code words come up, uh, he comes and he tells me, hey, you know, the teacher used this word today. So I immediately emailed uh, my son's teacher and I said, hey, can I have the copy of the curriculum that was used today to talk about celebrating differences? So I get this 18 page, you know, PowerPoint presentation and I'm looking through it and I'm like, okay, these two slides here, they are completely wrong. No, you are not teaching my child this stuff. So I sent that back to her and Cece, the principal. And I said, can you please show me uh, what ed code and what school policy allows you to teach this topic outside of CSE in a health class? to a sixth grader under the SEL curriculum. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I get the principal calling me back. Oh, Mr. Roscoe, um, we're going to look into this. And, you know, they're I always going to look into yeah. things. 
Correct. It drives me crazy. They're going to yeah. look into it. All right. And, and sure enough, I, I stayed on top of them and I found out that there is no school policy and there is no ed code forcing them to teach that. So then I asked them, why are you teaching that then to my sixth grader? And they're like, well, um, we're going to remove this from, from our future curriculum. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy that they removed it for future, you know, grades that are going to come through the sixth grade and, and do, do that SEL curricula but you know everybody else that was there in my son's classroom got it and and they were being told that if you're not celebrating other people's differences you're just you're just a mean person you're going to become that bully on the playground and and that is so evil mm-hmm. yeah i gotta think, be kind yeah. <laughs> yeah i think i think too uh, like my friend in portland what they did to her daughter is they give her these what are called health surveys and um when my friend inquired like, well, who looks at these results? Where do these go? You know, because it's attached to her daughter's student ID number. So the school would know what her daughter's answers are. And, you know, then it seems like there's the potential for, um, you know, children to get targeted by teachers or school counselors, you know, if they're having certain struggles that they could, provide interventions that the parents aren't even aware of or know oh, definitely. That, or know that the, is happening for the child. Definitely. There's, um, so here, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So here's what's happening right now. So the, the, the amount of data that SEL curricula providers are collecting off of our children is, is absolutely atrocious. That is then being fed to school uh, counselors, school site counselors, And what our school districts are doing right now in California is that they are now partnering with these top medical, um, you know, hospitals, for example, here in Orange County, Chalk Hospital, very renowned for, um, you know, children's services, right? And they now have opened up a, you know, transgender clinics, and they are the ones providing both the therapeutic, um, you know, interventions for our children in our school district. And then these children become their clients who then starting off from the smaller psychological therapeutics get moved on to further and further where if they question their gender or their sexuality, then all right, well, we have the the hormones, you know, the hormone blockers, puberty blockers, and then getting on to um, you know, all the way out to genital mutilation and, you know, and things like that. So it's, it's a whole kind of life cycle, very well connected. So when you're saying that, you know, um, kids are being tracked in their school and, um, it's going back to their IDs and things like that. Are you saying that, you know, like if a kid comes out to their teacher, the, the school is not under obligation to tell the parent, like they're being tracked without the parent's consent or knowledge? For the most part, I would say yes. I think the school districts would argue legally that when you sign the parent handbook, that, you know, that 100 page document at the beginning of the school year, uh, that you released a lot of, uh, you know, your... Uh, your rights or privileges. Um, So I I would say legally, they've, they always have ways to cover themselves. 
but I think mm-hmm. ethically and morally, uh, they are being very deceitful in how they get to that point. Would you then counsel parents just to, that they train their children? Like if your school tries to give you a survey, don't take it, you know, like opt out of it. And, and then that way you're discipling, you know, your child that to not participate in these kind of data collection situations um, because you don't know what that is. Correct. So one of the things that I recommend is, and, and we have an opt-out form on our website um, when you go under the four parents tab. But one of the things that we like telling parents is that you're not, don't just opt out of comprehensive sexuality education. Uh, on that form, it, it hits a lot of other things such as surveys um, and other questionnaires. Uh, and so it's a very comprehensive opt-out form. Um, there is like Pacific Justice Institute has an opt-out form. Alliance Defending Freedom, they provide opt-out forms for all 50 states. Parents go to those websites, download those very comprehensive, all-inclusive opt-out forms, check all those boxes, uh, sign that, print two copies of it, one for yourself, one that you will turn in for the school, and keep all of that documented at, from the beginning of the school year, turn all of that in to make sure you're, you're really putting your school district on notice. That's a good segue to, you know, how can, you know, how can we kind of um, begin to push back? Yeah, I was going to say, I like that idea. I like the the fact of, hey, this is in the parent's court. You know, if you have a bold child, um, it, it's fine. You know, hey, you don't take surveys and you can tell your teacher you're not taking a survey or you're not doing whatever and allow your child to step up. But if your child is more introverted, if your child is shy, if your child is afraid of losing friends or things like that, we have to remember that rearing raising our kids is the responsibility of the parent. And so we have to be a step before them so that they can kind of be removed, I I would say, to a degree from the conflict, from the, they can be sheltered and protected, I guess is the word that I'm looking for, protected from, you know, all of that, that conflict. We can just know like, hey, you know, don't don't give it to my kid and then if they do give it to your kid even though you have something on file and you go up and you raise hell and you're like no i'm not i'm not selling for this for my kid so kids today are in such an unfortunate position uh because they almost have to be you know very grown up to take care Mm -hmm. of themselves in the public schools yeah yeah so let's change gears here and talk a bit about potential solutions you've already started to give us some very good practicals of how you've responded um, lay out for us what you see, like big picture, what are the, the major options that you see for parents who have kids in, their pub, in the public schools? So our first message to all of our listeners for Protect Our Kids is get out now. Uh, and that comes from decades of warriors in this field who have tried to reform the public school system uh, and everything that has been tried um, has failed uh, probably fairly miserably since we're here at this point by now. Uh, but here's why. The teachers union is a 5 million plus members union strong. On the average, teachers are paying dues of about, let's say, 900 to $1,000 uh, per year into their union dues. So multiply 1,000 by 5 million, you're getting five billion dollars every single year that goes into teachers unions coffers 
Um, and so I'll just give the example here in California, there's over 300,000 um, teachers in the union. We have uh, just under 6 million kids in the public school system. Every child is worth about $15,000. Uh, to the union. So when you pull your child out, what ends up happening is um, the public school system loses $15,000. And that's when the teachers unions freak out because over the last two years, we have lost uh, 300,000 students uh, have been removed from the public school system in California alone. Wow, 300,000. Um, so if each student represents, you said $15,000. Mm -hmm. That's a lot, of, a lot money. of money. Now, another thing that teachers can do who are watching this, this stream is go back and watch our stream our, with our friend, David Schmoose mm -hmm. from Christian um, the Educators Association. Association. Yeah. And he's one of our partners and you can actually change your union dues to go to CEAI. And so that's another way of cutting off Yep. Uh, some of that money to to the unions. Yeah. And what, what we advocate is we say, parents, take out your children, get out now. But teachers, we need as many Christian teachers in the public school system to be the missionaries and the evangelists and to hold back the tide because a teacher within her his or her classroom has so much leeway on what to teach, how much of the curricula to teach, um, you know, which chapters to go over and things like that. Uh, so they can protect the children very well. But, you know, Krista, Monique, we recognize that getting out now for 95% of parents is not an option. Um, and especially when you're in some of these blue states where you have both parents working to try and make ends meet, how do you pay for or you have a lane. child in uh, like a special, special needs, needs or you have uh, a special needs child yes yes and and so public school it, you know is a is a first the for in the, a lot of those situations a necessity yeah. um so and again our two guiding principles you know is parents are in charge and the second one is knowing your options yeah. and so that's that's really what we want to do now Correct. you've already given us some ideas about how to push back um, some forms we can fill out, some things we can do to be vigilant. Um, are there other practical steps that you would have for parents who, who have to remain in the public schools? Yes, uh, form a parent group. There has to be a bunch of parents just like you uh, in that school district. So I highly encourage you to form a parent group, find a way to stay connected find a way to meet on a monthly or bi-monthly basis, start attending your local school district board meetings. Yes. See what's on the agenda. Uh, look at if they have passed or not passed some of these curricula. So for example, in 2018, when I started, you know, looking into all of this, um, you know, by God's divine providence, it just so happened that in April of 2018, I started looking into this stuff. And in May, the following month, my own school district was voting on the comprehensive sexuality education curricula that was going to be installed. Um, we were able to bring an, you know, all the parents uh, that we started notifying into the boardroom. We pushed back against the school district. We got it to, uh, to not pass. They, they didn't pass the vote successfully. And for three years, we were able to delay uh, that curricula from, you know, going in 
because we requested that there be a like a parent council that be formed and that parent you know group to start reviewing our options how many different curricula are out there which one is not you know that bad or what, what is the lesser of all evils and things like that so there if you come together as parents and band together and have a strategy for your own school district um, you can you can make things happen i missed that so another thing that I really want us to, I don't want to let you go until we talk about a very important topic, and that is another option um, that we're always talking about is trying to encourage, um, you know, some, some sanctified and holy imagination on the mm -hmm. part of pastors um, to figure out how local churches can be a resource to promote um, educational options for the families in their congregation. Um, I think that we're constantly trying to encourage pastors and churches that often will have property and a facility and a building just sitting there, just sitting there. All week. like what can we do in our local churches to begin to repurpose some of those resources. But the number one objection we get is, well, there's liability insurance problems and, 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 you know, there's just, it feels like for me, like there's all these obstacles to, to doing that. Yeah. And I know you've helped some churches in this area, um, get started down that road. You have so a pretty I, cool model. Yeah. So talk to us about that. Yeah. So when we started doing our conferences throughout California, this was one of the frustrations for us. We were going from church to church, to church up and down the state. And we saw that, you know, pastors were really struggling with, well, how, how do I do something like this? How do I help my uh, parents and children in my congregation? So um, we said, you know what? Um, it's very hard for us to tell them if we haven't done it before. So uh, about two years ago, we started brainstorming an approach on how to do this and what would that model look like? And we went out trying to find uh partner churches that would be willing to pilot this program. And so for the last school year, uh, starting in August 2021, we ended up starting uh, two um, of these local schools in local churches here in Orange County. Um, and our director of alternative schooling at Protect Our Kids, Tom Pollitt, was really instrumental to helping those local churches uh, push this through. But it really comes down to um, first of all, you know, meeting with the leaders of that church, the elder team, uh, the, the board of trustees, how, however, the, the governance structure of the churches and um, outlining a vision of what is possible within the local church that, that you reside. Um, and we have we developed this guide. Uh, it's a little 20 page PDF booklet um, that has 10 uh, very practical steps. Uh, on what it takes to start either a homeschooling co-op or a private school in your church. Uh, again, we ask churches to not try to take, you know, and, and, you know, take the whole apple and eat the whole apple in one bite, but, but take smaller bites. So you could start from doing just, you know, kindergarten through like third or fourth grade. Um, do a survey of the people in your church and look at are there teachers or retired teachers or volunteers uh, that would like to come in and, and provide that, that training. Um, 
And so th there's those 10 steps that we provide there. And sure enough, uh, we were able to do that with two of the local churches here in Orange County. I believe we have two more that want to start up this coming school year. Um, and that guide is available to download under our four pastures resources under uh, our website. That's awesome. So people can get that kind of PDF and it has a framework in it that they can share with their pastors. Um, and again, we want to, we're not here to tank on Christians working in no. public schools. We see them as missionaries, evangelists. We want to valuable. We, and we want to encourage pastors and leaders to pray for those people. That's, that's a group of missionaries that local churches can support and deploy into those uh, very hard ground, you know, to work yes. as a, as a buffer um, for our children. And so if anyone's hearing us just completely um, pan all public school teachers, like that's, that's not what this is, but we do want to empower, empower parents to understand, understand their options. We got a question that came in um, and it's asking, can parents take legal action against a school? or I guess a school district? Yes. So let me give you an example. In California, the California Healthy Youth Act requires that uh, prior to CSE being taught in your local school, the school district has to notify uh, 14 days in advance that this subject will be taught and they have to provide an opt-out form. Um, so, if you as a parent have not received any of that, um, then you can definitely, you have legal grounds to take action. There are many other stipulations in the law, but if you're familiar with the law, you're AB 329, you're then able to take legal action against your local school. Um, and so, uh, for example, I mean, that could, some, that could lead to potentially um, if those 14 day advance notice was not provided, then that school either has to stop teaching that and give an extra 14 days, a true 14 days, or because most of these schools teach this topic at the end of the school year, uh, sometimes then you are basically um, foregoing that subject even being able to be taught mm -hmm. because there's no more school days left in the year. Um, so if you know the, the law, uh, you can get here pretty clever in how to use it to your advantage. Yeah. Very good. Um, I want to read Alicia Moss's comment because this is just, Monique and I are always talking about creativity and imagination when it mm -hmm. comes to, um, you know, being what we call a justice entrepreneur in your area, in your sphere, in yeah. wherever you are. Not everybody can do everything, but I love Alicia's comment. She, again, is a uh, facilitator for a charter school whose students are homeschooled. But she says her big goal is to offer homeschool support through training and a co-op at her house or at her home church. It's a ministry her church isn't ready to jump into yet, but she's doing things in the meantime to prepare herself and to position herself to be able to, to jump into that, you know, when her church is ready. And so I, you know, I appreciate that. So we want to encourage people. There was a gal that wrote to us. Um, I think she lived in Seattle that she was saying that, she started um, getting, I think she recruited kids from six other families mm -hmm. that she made a commitment. She would help 
those families homeschool this year. And she was a teacher, a former public school teacher who wasn't teaching anymore. So she kind of created her own homeschool co-op in her house mm-hmm. and, right. and to, to make a way for other families. So be creative out there. You know, there's a lot of a lot of different ways to, to do this. Or consider Latasha Fields, who is in the South side of Chicago. And she, she's she been on our show before, but she goes door to door handing out opt-out forms to parents, door literally walking down the street, door to door, door, to door here's your opt-out form. And then when she's not doing that, she's bringing kids into her basement and homeschooling. Yeah, she'll do it. She, she has in the one hand, she has the opt-out form for the comprehensive sexuality education in the state of Illinois. And in her other hand, she says, this is the form you can fill out to homeschool your child. And if you'd like, I'll offer you one year of mentoring uh, to help teach you how to homeschool your child. I mean, so there's a lot of ways people can do this. Go ahead, George. Yeah, and the good news that I want to mention here is that as opposed to maybe 10, 20 years ago where there is scarce resources, Today, pastors and churches have access to a huge amount of resources that makes it so much more easier to actually start some kind of a support system of a homeschool co-op on their church site um, or even a full-on traditional Christian private school. It, It doesn't have to be one thing or the other. There are so many different models that we have available now. And we, we walk you through those models in our guide. Very good. Our final question for you, George, is even though you're working hard in the state of California, can people contact uh, you at your website? And again, I want to give that for the podcast, which is protectourkidsnow.org. Yeah. So protectourkidsnow, all one word, dot O-R-G. Uh, can people from other states contact you as well for advice? Yes. So right there on our website, we have the option to invite a speaker. Um, Mark and I just over the last couple of years have done over 40 speaking engagements. Um, We've done conferences at churches that have ranged from like three hour long, you know, very in-depth conferences, uh, getting into the practical stuff that parents can be doing to just very short, you know, 45 minute presentations, um, One of the things that I've experienced over and over is regardless of how short or how long, um, after the conference is where we really see that parents, when they hear this for the first time, they have so many questions and we end up spending more time after the conference, one-on-one with parents in line at the table uh, than we do in the conference itself. Uh, So yes, you could contact us on our website. Um, We are happy to come to wherever you are at, whatever, wherever state you're at. We've done speaking engagements, uh, Washington, Oregon, um, here in California, in Arizona, in Louisiana, uh, Florida, all, all over the place. Okay, right. great. I think um, we're going to, we're, I just want to say thank you, George, for all of your work. You know, may the Lord multiply your ministry and, continue uh, to strengthen you as you are um, working to help encourage parents. Thank you so much for all you're doing. I know that based on the comments that we've seen, um, it uh, there's a lot of good, good engagement um, here. So I know people really appreciated the message. And so once again, we want to encourage people to contact protectourkidsnow.com 
www.ethicalcounselingcenter.org. And share this interview with your pastors, with your friends, um, so that people can become connected with George and aware of his work, but also so that they can be aware of what's happening in schools. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much. God bless you. God God bless. bless. Bye. Okay. So we're going to talk about Eve in Exile. Yes, um, because we've both seen it. Yeah. I've only I've seen um, Matt Walsh's What is a Woman, but she hasn't. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. So we're going to talk about Eve in Exile. But I do want to let you know that uh, my daughter, Emily Bontrager, uh, is coming out with uh, some comments and a review on What is a Woman on the Center for Biblical Unity website on Tuesday. Yes. So you will want to uh, check that out. She has a very thoughtful perspective uh, as a young person. And she had a lot of great comments about the film. So you can watch for that to drop on Tuesday. Okay, so Even Exile, set up some context here. Um, Even Exile is produced by Canon Canon Press. Press. It's Canon Plus. It's on the Canon Plus app. app. Mm -hmm. So if you want to watch it, you have to go download the Canon Plus app and then you can buy a month or you there's a coupon code floating around on the internet where you can just, I think, watch the documentary for like 99 cents. Or yeah, something. use the code EVE99 if you want to watch the Just the put thing. it out there. All right. Everybody. Use you can Google it. It's public information. <laughs> okay. I'm just saving you a step. So, okay. So even Exile is uh, the Canon Press people are affiliated with uh, Doug Wilson, who is a longtime pastor, and uh, he's up in Moscow, Idaho, and he has a church up there called Christ Church. And I understand all the controversies about Doug Wilson's theology, and we're not going to get into that. That's not what this is. This is not even, this is not a promotion of even exile or doug wilson this is just our thoughts on it we are not saying please go follow this man we are not saying go follow rebecca merkel we are just giving you our thoughts before about a documentary yes so don't don't write write in yeah you you encourage me we ain't encourage you to do nothing you better ask the lord and do it do read your bible yeah do likewise yeah but um okay so rebecca merkel who is the author of the book even Exile, which I have listened to the audio version of the book now after watching the documentary twice. Um, Rebecca Merkel is Doug Wilson's oldest daughter. And so she wrote a book a few years ago. I think it came out in 2018. And um, now this documentary is based on the book. Okay. And uh, basically the first third of the book, it's kind of a book in three movements. The first third of the book is her making her case that feminism was a scam. Mm. And Mm -hmm. uh, she goes through the different um, waves of feminism, Uh, what she calls proto-feminism, and then first wave feminism, which is more like Susan B. Anthony and uh, Katie Stanton, and then uh, second wave feminism in the 60s of the feminine mystique and and uh, the rise of abortion and then kind of whatever whatever wave we're in now where we can't even define a woman uh, you know so so I think that's the real strength of the book is the the historical survey and that yeah. that's in the documentary as mm-hmm. well yeah 
So I thought it was helpful to kind of go back and see the movements of feminism and how we um, got to the moment that we're in right now. Like it wasn't by accident, people. You know, you can actually trace these thoughts back through history. Okay. So to me in a documentary, that was the most helpful part. Yes. Was the historical discussion. And um, kind of interesting, like Mary Shelley and the author of Frankenstein and kind of her connection to proto-feminism, but I won't go into that. That was sort of interesting side tangent, but I thought that was really the strength of, of the, both the book and the documentary. Okay, now the second movement is looking at the creation mandate and she boils it down to four words. It's like um, fill, which is really to fill the earth, subdue, subdue the earth. I don't remember none of this. Go ahead. Um, oh. Yeah. Maybe uh, it was in the book and not the documentary. I don't know. Yeah. No, it was in the documentary okay, too. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I forget what the other two words were. If somebody has the table of contents, you can put them in the chat. But there's basically four words that she boils the creation mandate in Genesis 1 down, down to. Mm -hmm. And um, in the book part of it, that's kind of the theology section. And there really wasn't much I disagreed with her there mm -hmm. in, in the book. I thought she laid out most of the theology in a way that I was like, yeah, I think I would generally agree with that. And, you know, it wasn't overly problematic. I think what's, what's interesting and becomes a little bit more controversial is in the third movement of the book where she starts to apply these things and what her, build out her vision for, for what womanhood, biblical womanhood is according to her according to her i think i think it's easy to take her version or vision for biblical womanhood because in the documentary she's like rebuilding her house like everything that's the everything is surrounding her home like part she's of, painting a bookcase she's baking bread she's in her garden part of the the documentary looks at what does it mean to be a woman what is what is femininity how how are you expressing your femininity um in your home that the the woman's place isn't necessarily in the home like you you're finding it a job like she's not disputing that you can work outside or things like that but before you focus on a career or anything like that you're focusing on your home which oh, Emily's helping us here. The four words were subdue, fill, help, and glorify. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. We appreciate it. Yeah. Um, which I don't disagree with. I don't disagree. Like if you're, if you are a, a parent, I believe that your focus should first be on God, your marriage, your family, kids, and things like that. And you know, what does that look like in the home um, where everyone lives? I think in the third movement, though, what happens is that she gave her depiction of what that looks like. And a lot of people have taken that as being what she's saying for all women. Yeah. I don't know that that's true, though. I don't know that she's saying every woman, if you want to be a biblical woman, which she might be saying, I could be wrong, um, you know, if you want to be a biblical woman, you need to be home, making sure that your home looks good for your husband, making sure that the bookshelves are painted, making sure that you're baking fresh bread and, um, you know, you're in the garden and all of those kind of things. <laughs> I think that's her, her life and how she expresses her 
womanhood or femininity or whatever for her family through that? Yeah, I think that, okay, a couple of things. One where I would agree with her, and I think she raises a very thoughtful point, is that a biblical vision of womanhood is that women are created for procreation. Like we're reminded of that every month as we have our monthly cycle that we are created and designed for procreation. And so she's really confronting this idea that's growing in popularity in our culture that we can, and that feminism played into, especially, um, you know, almost from the beginning is her, is her argument of separating procreation from sex like you know that that these are two different things so this is why feminists um advocate for abortion and birth control and because it's it's Mm. about separating procreation from sex and so the idea of feminism in 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 Merkel's mind is kind of one of the core ideas is that women should um get out of the home and work, that will be the cure for the boredom that so many women feel with motherhood. And that by controlling reproduction, um, they are able then to have more options for their life. This, this is kind of her, her, big, her big theme of the problem and the scam of feminism. I actually... Um, agree with this to some degree, because I do think that feminism does put forward a narrative often that um, if we are bored with motherhood, that working will solve that boredom. That is kind of the propaganda that the feminists put out there. And I I don't think it's a controversial point. I think that most feminists would agree that they are, that is their project, is to separate procreation from sex. And so if we're going to think about things biblically, um, we have to wrestle with bringing, I think, those two things back together. And so the idea of being a woman and, and being a married couple in particular, and just not being open to children at all, you know, because you just want to live your life. Now, if God calls you to a very specific ministry or something of that nature, that those are exceptions, but just as a general rule, like the the rise of, I'm just going to opt out of marriage, or I'm just going to opt out of children, Mm -hmm. not for ministry purposes, but just like, I'm not even just going to be open to it. I think Rebecca Merkel raises a very thoughtful point about, about how that's really not a biblical position. Yes. And so that's, that's really where I think I would agree with her in, in principle. Um, because children are an interruption to your life. I mean, when I had a child, my education stopped and my, my daughter is, is on this and, and, and I love her. And that was a wonderful interruption. It was the interruption that God knew that I needed because I was on a wrong path. And so there was a trust that for me developed um, as a result of that. And she was definitely the interruption that I needed, but children are an interruption. You for, got for, notes. Yeah. For most uh, women that, you know, if you're on a, a career path, you will have to have your career take a back seat. And so for 
I don't know, the first 15, 16 years or so, you know, I was working part-time and, 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 and I think this is Rebecca Merkel's second point is that the woman should be oriented toward the home. She's, she's not against women working. She just doesn't want women, Christian women to buy into the scam that motherhood is boring or and, that it robs you yeah. and, and you are to some degree now deficient because you are a mother. Yeah. So I think that um, it's, I, I, I appreciate that she's willing to have this question, this, this conversation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that we can acknowledge that children are an interruption, but, but we can also, as women, trust the Lord in his provision of those children for us and the role that they might play in our sanctification. And if our attitude is that we are bored with motherhood, that might be an indication of something else going wrong, um, you know, for us uh, that we need to look at or have a conversation with the Lord about or something, Yeah, you know, but... Um, so I don't know. Those are some of the areas where I agree with her. Um, but, and, and I, I do appreciate that Merkel highlights the, the issue that this idea that motherhood should be voluntary. And this is why birth control and abortion are so critical to the feminist um, vision for women. Uh, this is how they define freedom. I think we're right in that discussion right now mm-hmm. with the abortion conversation of, you know, all of this phraseology of you're forcing me to have a child. And well, it goes right into and back to the feminist scam that they want to invite us into yeah. on that. So it's a very countercultural message. Now, the parts of it that you were alerting to earlier of, of you know, Merkel's particular vision and the whole um, backdrop that she uses of the, the house renovations. Okay, I, I'm just gonna be in, in, uh, totally honest. Like I am not a creative person in that way. I, I love what she says though about um, even for single women to think about and reflect on how God has uniquely created you. What is the the, the talents and gifts and that I you have? And I appreciate that she doesn't define femininity as being tea parties and little, you know, turn of the century little. I like tea. I cannot even like I for like me that would never British work. I, the, the all the little fancy teacups and like, I like that. that is for I. I grew up in a church, not I grew up, but when I was saved, um, that was kind of like the the ideal of, you know, a women's ministry event. It was the Victorian things and all of that. And I, to me, I didn't fit into that. And so I was glad to see other, that she was saying there are other options available. Yeah. It doesn't have to be this. She wasn't, you know, prancing around in high heels and a pencil skirt. That would be my version to me. But <laughs> that there is room to express who you are and how God has yeah. created you. And I appreciated that she included single women in that vision. It wasn't just, well, you're only a, a valid woman if you have children or if you're married. Because that's a lot of the conversation yeah. that I see in the church today yeah. of like, you know, we can, we don't really talk to the single people. Yeah. And I, I appreciated that. And that it was more about like looking at your gifting, your mm-hmm. calling and then how can you be a creative 
blessing, I think is what she, the word she used to others. So if you really love hospitality and you're single, maybe, you know, if God gives you means, then you open your home or your apartment up to others to be hospitable to them. Mm -hmm. If you've in, so how can you be a blessing to them? For me, if, if I was defining the outward appearance, the external trappings of womanhood, and I was trying to be like Rebecca Merkel, who was obviously very creative and um, in her home and her decoration. And I bless that. I admire that in women, but that's not me. Like I just, I'm not gifted in that way, but I didn't get the feeling that she was saying, this is what all women must do. Now I had another friend who watched it. And that was kind of how she interpreted the whole home remodeling backdrop that 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 was Rebecca Merkel's vision for all women is all you can do is decorate your house and bake bread I didn't take it that way I felt like what she was saying is this is how she does it but that there was freedom for women to explore that with the Lord to figure out how can I build a home and in a way that keeps me oriented and putting my primary focus on my home, mm-hmm. but that can look different for different people. Yes. But make no mistake about it. The primary place is the home first. The, the, the focus yeah. is, is the home first. And so, you know, it's the kids first, it's your husband first, which I don't think should be a very controversial point, but for many people it is. Mm-hmm. So anyways, those are some thoughts about even exile uh, Alicia Moss says, uh, my daughter asked the question the other day, is it unbiblical to choose not to have children? I'm glad to hear it addressed. I appreciate that Rebecca Merkel is willing to have the conversation about things that are along these lines. I, I don't hear a lot of people addressing this. So yeah. I also think that, you know, you don't have to agree with her on everything. You yeah. don't have to agree with Doug Wilson on everything. And there's a way that we can take the the nuggets or the pieces that we do agree with and you know contemplate those things or you know things that we might be on the fence about we can say okay well that's one perspective and then hear another perspective and you know make informed biblical decisions now one thing i'd like to ask you about in you living overseas in africa um do you think that rebecca merkel's vision for womanhood is uniquely American? No. Does it? I mean, I, no, I don't. Or affluent, like this is only no. for rich white women. No. Like, talk, talk to me a I little bit. I have seen women in shacks who literally make their shack the focal point. They might go out and clean houses in the day and, um, you know, their husband goes out to work, but literally they live like in a shack in Kaimandi or in Kailicha in South Africa. And when they come home, their shack is very neat in order um there the woman's the woman's main concern is her husband and her children that is you know that is just so it didn't strike you as as, a message for affluent people nope i've seen it um in like jamestown which is like a middle class area and um you know where both parents might work but see things are a little different in south africa so usually in south africa people get off work early enough so that the entire family can come home and have dinner together it is a value there people aren't working until seven o'clock at night 
people get off work usually around 4, 4.30. If their kids are in after-school care, they're able to pick their kids up. Um, and then they come home and wives make dinner. Um, they generally make their husbands a cup of tea. And then they start their evening routine and men definitely help out. It's not just like the, the husband goes and puts his feet up while the, the wife just does all this, but um, it, it's definitely one, a partnership, but two, making the house a home is- Which I think is Merkel's yeah, point. Yeah, it's it's what a woman does in, in my travels in like South Africa and Zambia. And I've seen it among, you know, the affluent in South Africa, I've been in some very affluent places and I've been in checks. It doesn't strike me at her. Like what she was saying didn't strike me as this is a white, um, you know, this is only for the white American woman. And you have to have, you know, your $100,000 plus home. I mean, not home, but income um, in order to make this work. Okay. I just was curious about. All right, friends, that's going to do it for us this week. We'll be back next week with another live show. It'll be uh, July 2nd. I can't believe the year's half over. Yes, yes, yes. All right, take care, good night, and God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.